Today's sermon comes from Micah 5, 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This past week, I came across a quote from Martin Luther, who was very influential in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Listen to this. God made man out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Let me say that again. God made man out of nothing, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. What a beautiful quote. What a terrifying quote. Because if we're honest, it's the one thing that terrifies us in our deepest parts to be nothing, to be a nothing. In fact, if you look at your life, if you look at the history of the world, if you look at the history of the scriptures, mankind over and over out of a deep insecurity that knowing deep down in you there is, there is a nothingness, there's a brokenness, out of that insecurity rises up and tries at all costs to avoid that, that nothingness. It's kind of like a, uh, an old wooden fence, a teetering wooden fence that is about to topple over. And so you prop it up. You put a piece of wood against it and prop it up. And then it starts to topple the other way. So you put a wood on, piece of wood on the other side, you prop it up. And it starts to fall in another spot. So you prop it up in another place. And before long, that, that fence that is literally <laughs> deteriorating to nothing has so many props up against it that you can't even see the fence. It's a story of our lives. There's this refusal deep in, in us to, there's this refusal to acknowledge what we are and the brokenness and the shame. And so we prop, up, we prop ourselves up. And you can do it with a lot of things. You can try to prop yourself up with a career. You can try to prop yourself up with a relationship. You can try to put a prop up through your children. You can use pleasure as a prop. You can use entertainment as a prop. You can use just about anything that you'll find to prop your life up and refuse to acknowledge what really Martin Luther's getting at here, is that deep down there is a, a nothingness. It's a brokenness. We're deeply insecure. We don't want to admit it. And yet that's where in Micah 5, Israel finds itself absolutely broken, having had a history of putting props up and finally 
they came crumbling down and with it the props. And that's ultimately what happens to a life that's propped up by a bunch of things in this world that eventually at some point it comes toppling down and the props come with it. And yet in this passage, in verse three, right in the center of our passage, there is this ray of hope. It's the hope of being made something out of nothing. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ births an identity. The birth of Jesus Christ redefines you. How does it do that? How does the birth of Christ that we celebrate in this Advent season redefine you in your core that you don't need the props anymore? That you don't need a career or a relationship or motherhood or pleasure or all these things that that are good gifts of God, but they're never made to be props. How does the birth of Jesus redefine you so that you stand on him and him alone and nothing else? First, the birth of Jesus redefines your failure. Your failure. Verse one starts in chapter five with utter humiliation and shame and failure of Israel. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. See, Israel's under attack. Assyria has come in to invade, to ransack Jerusalem and to take God's people into exile. And it's what Micah prophesied all throughout this book, starting in chapter one. He warned them because of their sin and idolatry that that judgment was coming, that Assyria was gonna come and invade and ransack Jerusalem, and now it's happening. And what we see here is that Assyria comes in and they go to Jerusalem and they get to the center where the temple is. And where the king, King Hezekiah, the judge of Israel, the king of Israel resides, and they slap him on the cheek. That is an utter insult. It's an utter insult. And what it means is that Israel and their ruler and their king have been brought to absolutely nothing. Utter shame and humiliation. Their king that they had longed for becomes the whipping boy. I mean, there's there's nothing left for them. Shame and humiliation. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been because of your sin? Because of your failure? Have you ever come to the place of utter shame and humiliation? Tim Chester, he writes a book called Closing the Window, and he shares the following quotes from men who have found themselves in guilt and condemnation, and shame, and humiliation from viewing pornography. Listen to some of these quotes. It's made me want to hide from God. It makes me doubt my salvation, and then the depression comes. And with the depression comes temptation to sin again. I feel horrible about myself. I don't feel worthy to serve God, and I don't believe I can break the habit. I feel dirty and unable to approach God after looking at porn. So often, I feel unable to come to him in repentance, even though I know my sin is already dealt with. 
I couldn't talk with God about my problems. My picture of him was that he would accept me if and when I had scrubbed up enough. Now, I'm giving you just an example of sexual sin, right? The shame that results from that or any other sexual sin is there, but it goes beyond that. It's the shame of, of parents who discipline their kids out of anger and frustration and run, wonder if they're ruining their child, right? It's parents who, who neglect their children or, or aren't spending time with them and wonder if they have ruined their child. It's the shame that comes from gossiping and slandering a coworker or joining in the gossip and slander and effectively ruin somebody's career. Or it's the shame that comes from an eating disorder and wanting a certain body image and, and not being able to, to get out of that eating disorder. There are a number of things that reduce us to a place of shame and humiliation. And in the midst of that, just like Israel was in that place, the question you have to ask and you have to answer is how does God respond to you in your shame and failure? How does he respond? You'll notice the first word after verse one, after the utter shame and humiliation that Israel finds themselves in, what is the first word in verse two? But, but, <laughs> you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, Micah uses certain words in verse two. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Judah, ruler in Israel, from of old. And all those words are with great purpose recalling God's covenant with David, the past king of Israel. In fact, 1 Samuel 7, 17, 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. You see, David had failed. All the kings after David had failed, including Hezekiah, that brought Israel to this point of utter shame and humiliation. But even though, in spite of the failure of David and his line, God's covenant with David would never fail. God would never fail his covenant even though his people had failed. And that's what we read in verse two. On the, I mean, listen to this. On the heels of their failure, on the heels of their failure, God immediately promises the greater David, the one who's gonna come and forgive and renew and fix all the brokenness. See, God responds to your shame and failure by moving towards you in rescue, not away from you. In fact, it's the story of the scripture. Go back to the first failure in the Bible, Genesis, when the first two people created Adam and Eve. What did they do after they failed? When they rebelled against God, when they sinned against him, when they said, God, we don't need you. What did God say? Fine, don't live your life. No, immediately after failure, before he even announces the curse, the consequence on Adam and Eve in the creation, 
he announces and pronounces the curse on the evil one, on Satan, on the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15 says, I am going to send one who will crush you, serpent, and rescue my people. You see, in the midst of your shame and failure, God moves forward towards you in rescue, not away from you in condemnation. Why? Because he is good to his covenant. His response to your humiliation and shame is the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. That's his response. I will send my son. And not only his birth, but his life, death, and resurrection. When Jesus died, he died by Roman crucifixion, which was an incredibly shameful way to die. In fact, listen to this quote on what Roman crucifixion was like in that day. It was death deserved by the most unworthy of all unworthies. It was death with grim humiliation and abasement. So shameful was the death of Jesus that several centuries later, the Gnostics denied it. They rejected it and said, no, only, Jesus only appeared to die. In fact, in the centuries since then, people have been rejecting this idea of Jesus' shameful death on a cross because they can't figure out in their mind how God, out of pure love, would take on the shame of his people. God's response to your shame and failure is rescue, love. See, the birth of, of Jesus redefines your failure. Rather than leaving you in a puddle of shame, he moves towards you and rescues you and rescues you out of it. Jesus Christ is not your accuser. He's your advocate. And he's not your enemy. He's your ally. He wants to rescue you. He moves towards you, not away from you. And not only that, but he fights for you. Look at verses four to five, the beginning of five. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. What does that all mean? It means that Jesus protects you. It means that he provides a way out when you're tempted. And when you fail, and, and don't resist temptation. He picks you up and he gives you a new start. You see, re Jesus redefines your failure. He uses your failure by his grace and by his power to move you to a new beginning. And he does it over and over and over. In an article in Christianity Today, it was titled, Our Divine Distortion Christian songwriter Carolyn Ahrens describes a, an experience she had in life that moved her to a place, and she said, this is typically what we do, to where she, was, she turned a friend into an enemy. And her point, and you're gonna see why, is that we tend to project that on God. She was uh, online, or she needed a new computer, and so she found on eBay this tremendous deal on a new laptop. It was like half off. And she was blown away. And so she, she uh, spoke to her friend Spencer, who was also a music colleague of hers, and says, I found a laptop 
that's half off. And her friend's response was, you know, anything too good to be true. And she said, I, I know, I know. Listen, this eBay seller has 100% approval rating. And her friend said, just be careful. And she said, I, I, I wasn't born yesterday. I know. She was getting very frustrated with her friend. And so she went ahead and sent off the $1,300 and quickly found out that she had been scammed and that this person right, had, had um, hacked into an eBay user's identity to begin to fraudulently take money from people. And she said when that happened, immediately she thought to herself, I do not want to talk to Spencer. I don't want to hear the condemning I told you so. So she ignored his calls. She quit. She, she made sure she wasn't going to see him. She avoided him at all costs, but it went beyond that. She started to, in her mind, think, how could he be so judgmental of me? How could he be so accusing of me? Why am I friends with him anyways? And then, of course, she was forced to see him when they had to get on a flight to go to a concert, to do a concert. And they're on the flight, and just soon into the flight, he just said to her, he said, so whatever happened with that computer thing? She said she, she confessed it to him. And what she received was loyal, faithful, sympathetic, empathetic Spencer. But isn't that so true how we, how we almost turn Jesus into an accuser, into an enemy, when we find ourselves in that place of shame and humiliation, when, when he told us, when he warned us, right? Don't do that. It's going to end in disaster. And so we do it, and we get into a place of shame, and, we, and, and we, we almost distort him into this accuser and this enemy, and we start to put, it, put ourselves at a distance from him. Listen, Jesus Christ is not your enemy. He's not your accuser. He's your advocate. He's your ally, and he moves towards you in your sin to rescue you. The birth of Jesus redefines your failure, and by grace, he gives you a new start over and over and over. Second, how does the birth of Jesus redefine you? Redefines your failure. Second, he redefines your greatness. He redefines your greatness by verse one of chapter five. Right? We see that human, human ways to greatness eventually always lead to humiliating defeat. And that's where Israel found themselves. Remember Israel's history. Remember Deuteronomy chapter seven? God says to Israel, I chose you not because you were large and significant and powerful. In fact, Israel was just the opposite. They were little, they were small, they were insignificant. God said, I chose you because, why? I loved you, period. And so Israel was to find their worth not in their achievements, their size, their strength, their accomplishments, their greatness. They were to find their worth in the fact that they were loved by God, period. Of course, that didn't last long, right? In the period of the judges, you remember, they looked around and they looked at the other nations, they said, wow, look how strong and successful they are. What are they doing? Oh, they have a king. We don't. God, we want a king. God gives them a king. It doesn't work out very well. 
And then we see here in the beginning of Micah in the first three chapters that their sin and idolatry had, had caused them to look around at those that were great and start making alliances with other nations. That they were looking around and, and in their idolatry, seeking greatness in the world's ways. And ultimately, it led to defeat. God is their king. God is the one who loved them wasn't enough. You see, the way, the way to victory and triumph in the kingdom of God is polar opposite from the way to greatness in the world. It's the exact opposite. And that's what verse two is highlighting. Look at verse two again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one who is to be ruler in Israel. You see, in contrast to the powerful, prideful clans of Judah, Bethlehem was nothing. It was nothing. It was insignificant. And yet out of Bethlehem was gonna come the savior of the world, Jesus. Even if you go back to, it's, it's amazing how Jesus' birth and all that we see in him is, is patterned throughout the story of the scripture. Look at even King David, how he was chosen by God. You remember the story in Samuel? David's brothers were the, they were tall, they were good looking, they were strong. They're the people you'd look at and say, there's a king. And David was the little run. He was a little run of the family. He was a shepherd boy. And God chose him because that's the way God works. His kingdom ways are upside down from the world. First Corinthians chapter one, 27 to 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. He was born in an animal feeding trough. He was born to poor parents that could only afford a common turtle dove to bring as a sacrifice to his circumcision. Jesus, when he lived his life, didn't do it as the Gentiles, lording his authority and exalting it over people. In fact, when he rode into Jerusalem as the king, what did he ride in on? A tiny little donkey, probably the size of a Great Dane dog. And we know how he died. He chose to die on a cross, Roman crucifixion, Horrible shame. You see, Jesus' triumph absolutely defies the world's ways to greatness. Jesus' triumph defies the world's ways to greatness. So in Luke chapter nine, the disciples, by the way, the disciples he chose, right? Up and coming, respected, powerful, prominent people in the culture. No, they were blue collar fishermen and hated tax collectors. So Luke nine, the disciples are standing around Jesus Right? They were insecure, just like you and I are. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, who's the greatest? Right? Who of us is the greatest? Tell us. And what does Jesus say? He who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. He who is least is the greatest. Who's the greatest Christian in the history of the world? You think about that for a second. How would you answer that question? Who's the greatest Christian in the history of the world? 
Maybe you go back to the first couple centuries, Polycarp, or St. Augustine, maybe Martin Luther, John Calvin, maybe to our day, maybe Billy Graham, John Piper, Tim Keller, whoever. Now, you know who the greatest Christian in the world is? We probably don't know her because she's probably dying of cancer in a tiny little remote insignificant village in Africa. We are, in our culture, we are so addicted to results, to greatness, to success, to numbers, to product. And it doesn't matter how you get there. The world says this is greatness, this is success, and it doesn't matter how you get there. You've heard the phrase or the question, does the end justify the means? You know what that question is asking. Does the end justify the means? It means this, does the end, does greatness, does success, do, do numbers justify the means, how you actually get there? Now our world would say, absolutely, doesn't matter how you get there. Success is success. Numbers are numbers. Results are results. And Jesus says, no. No, how you get there does matter. But what that has produced in our world and specifically in our culture is a premium on marketing and an intense selfishness. Let me start with the marketing. You know what marketing is. Marketing is, there's the end And how do I get there? Even if I have to lean on people's, the worst part of their character, how do I get there? And so what that produces is on billboards around town or in the Money Pages magazine with advertisements, you see an advertisement for an air conditioner with a scantily clad, attractive woman next to it. And you say, What does that have to do with that? Nothing. That's the answer. But it gets results, right? Now, let me dial it in a little bit closer to away from culture to how it's permeated the church or permeated Christianity, and that is we market Jesus. We market Jesus, right? In an attempt to get results, whether it's numbers Right? That's the result, and however we get there, it doesn't matter. And so what happens is the gospel message gets distorted, and it goes something like this. If you want a wealthy life, if you want a healthy life, if you want a good life, if you want a comfortable life, if you want the answer to all your problems and go from a horrible life to a very comfortable, blessed life, then trust Jesus. Now, who says no to that? That feeds off the very problem we have is this intense selfishness that says, I am entitled to a good life. And so if we feed that message, come to Jesus and you'll get that, what are we doing? All we're doing is feeding the selfishness of the human soul and the brokenness that has caused everything. And we use Jesus to get there. Listen, Jesus doesn't need marketing. He doesn't. Now, you say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? When he says to the Jew, I become a Jew, right? 
to the Gentile and Gentile, I've become all things to all men to win as many as possible. Listen, that's, that's incarnating the gospel. That may be changing the package. It's not, it's not changing the content of the gospel. Jesus doesn't need to be marketed. What he needs is people that will honestly communicate the message of the gospel, which is you come to Jesus, your life might get worse. It may get worse. Now, <laughs> you will prosper forever in eternity. Oh, and you will prosper in eternity. And yes, it will be comfortable and good and all of that. But now, it may get worse. Let me just speak to the second way that this fixation on worldly greatness has affected our culture. One is it's tended, we tend to market Jesus to get numbers. But second, it, it feeds a selfishness. And this is highlighted. There's a story in Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, about a, a friend of his who was in the private equity uh, area of work. And he worked for this financial services firm. And his team identified a great investment in a company, this company that would bring lots of returns the only problem is his friend, in his friend's mind, this company that they were looking to invest in was not contributing to the good of society. In his opinion, it was actually damaging the good of society. The company was doing nothing illegal. His firm had no problem investing in it. It wasn't black and white. It's a gray area. That's what most of life is lived in, isn't it? And so he was torn between the means and the end. The end of creating value for his company but the means of, of contributing to human, human flourishing. And so he, the deal went through with this company and, and, the, uh, and, and he chose to not take any bonuses from the deal. It was a lucrative deal. It brought in a ton of money and there were big bonuses handed out and he said no. It was a huge sacrifice that he took. But do you see the point? Jesus cares about the means. He cares how we move to triumph and greatness. And the reality is this, Jesus' way to greatness, which is down, which is to be the least of these, is to be the least, it's humility, right? Jesus' way to greatness, that new pattern of thinking, most likely will not produce worldly success. Now, does that mean that you, you avoid worldly success if you're in business? No. It means that you do things Jesus' way. And if he blesses you with success, oh, then so be it. But that the way to greatness in the kingdom is polar opposite to the way to greatness in the world. And Jesus cares about that new pattern that he gives you. And listen, when he redefines greatness for you, he gives you the grace and the power to do things his way in humility even if it means you sacrifice worldly greatness or worldly success. How does the birth of Jesus redefine you? Redefines your failure, redefines your greatness. Finally, it redefines your purpose. Look at verse five. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. Now, what does this mean? I said earlier, Jesus is your ally. He's your advocate. 
Verse four, he fights for you. He protects you. What's he telling Israel in this context? He's fighting for them. He's protecting them. But how does he do it? Verse five, he raises up shepherds. He raises up people in Israel, right, to protect and defend. The number seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. It's a number of completeness. So when you couple seven shepherds with eight princes, seven yet eight, what you see here, what it means is that there are more than enough people, right, that God employs and uses to bring his protection from evil that is pressing in. Now, Micah's prophecy finds its fulfillment in Christ in the church, which means the shepherds of Israel today in the church are the elders and the under shepherds in the church. And the physical sword, right, that, the, that the Israel, the shepherds of Israel wielded to defend against the invading Assyrians, right, today is the sword of God's word. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so Micah's prophecy fulfilled today means this. It's speaking of elders, of shepherds and under-shepherds in the church that God raises up, wielding the word of God to protect and care for one another and pressing off the evil and the brokenness that is pushing in. That's what it means. Now, why is this so important? Up until this point, this sermon, and the points of it so far, redefining your failure, redefining your greatness, can be listened to and heard very individualistically. Me and God, me and Jesus. Jesus will redefine my failure. He'll redefine my greatness. That's true. But what we see here in verse five is that this is a communal project. It's not just individual and vertical, it's communal, which means that God raises up shepherds in his church under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, to care for one another, to protect one another from the evil and brokenness in our culture that presses in. It's a communal project. That's why we put such an emphasis on community groups at Christ Church East. Listen, there's nothing magical about groups. Nothing magical about it. It's our way of trying to employ, it's our method of trying to activate this dynamic body life where people are are fighting for one another, going to battle for one another, protecting one another, caring for one another. So that in your group, when someone loses a loved one, that God uses you as a shepherd under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, to bring comfort and to bring hope. Or when someone in your group is being gripped by materialism, that God uses you as a shepherd under the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, to speak truth and love, and to help rip them out of the grip of greed. Or when somebody in your group is experiencing tremendous suffering with some sort of health condition, God uses you 
as a shepherd under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, to bring encouragement and perspective to keep that person from falling into despair. See, this is a communal project. And bolstered by a community of love, God then scatters you to the various pockets of this city to display and reveal the kingdom of God that came with the birth of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is making all things new and he's doing it through his people and his community. So that the birth of Jesus Christ that we celebrate this Advent season births a new identity individually and collectively. And it redefines you individually and it redefines us collectively. Redefines your failure, redefines your greatness redefines your purpose so that all the props that you have put up can fall and you stand on Jesus Christ and on him alone, bolstered by his people and his body. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us to look around at neighbors and at coworkers and at people, to see worldly greatness or, or worldly success and comfort. And in our own insecurity to begin to prop our lives up with things of this world. For some of us, it's career. For some of us, it's motherhood. For some, it's pleasure. Might be a relationship might be success. Father, if we're honest with ourselves, we are aware of the nothingness in us. We're aware of the brokenness and the deep insecurity. And we confess this morning that we put props up all the time. And Father, I pray that you would remove those props. Actually, Father, I pray that you would so redefine us and build our identity in Christ that those props would just fall as you strengthen us. That we would adore you, Jesus, and that we would be at a place where we need nothing else. Even the good things you bless us with that are good, that we don't even need those. That the props would fall and that, Jesus, you would redefine us. Our failures, our greatness, and our purpose. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.